Remember this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love from John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. You would open in your Bibles to John chapter 4. And if you hear a verse that sparks your interest, you'll be right where it is. Today's name of Jesus is Living Water. And this passage is probably the first passage anybody who knows the Bible and the New Testament thinks of when they think of living water, because Jesus is saying that he can give the living water. 
that he indeed is that living water. Not only can he give living water uh, to those who are thirsty and want it, but he can make them a wellspring of living water so that they can be a blessing to others. Now we may say at any given point in our lives that we want to be transformed, to receive that kind of living water, that we want our lives changed and, and made holy like Christ's. But it's a difficult process. And I, I've always said that I don't understand why God doesn't just reboot our system like we would uh, a changing an operating system on a computer. You just put in a, a chip or a, a memory device, run it in there, and it erases the old one and starts up the new one. I don't know why God doesn't do that. Uh, it has uh, a lot to do with how we're made and who we are. God wants to redeem who we are rather than wipe it out and start over again. Today's scripture records the discussion between Jesus and a Samaritan woman that he met at a well on the outskirts of the Samaritan town of Sychar. We often, all of us, resist facing the very thing we need to face so that our lives can be made better, so that we can build a better self. For instance, we'll put off going to the dentist because we know from what we feel in our mouth that there's going to be nothing but bad news when we go to see the dentist, even though we have one of the best dentists around up here. Same thing with doctors or dietitians. They're always telling us truths that we don't want to hear. Like the Samaritan woman, we need an encounter with Jesus to disarm our defenses and to gently but irresistibly confront us with the truth. Whenever we're confronted, that moment of confrontation never feels gentle or good. It is, it is jarring, it is painful, and we will do just about anything to squirm out from under it. This is one of the best stories in the Bible about God's gently persistent love that helps us face the discouraging truth about ourselves and accept the life that he alone can give us. First, the story starts with two thirsty people. Jesus is thirsty, she's thirsty. There's something in this encounter, this, this particular woman that for some reason calls out to Jesus. And despite the fact that he, we're told uh, early in the first part of the chapter, didn't read that part, but what we know is that Jesus was tired and he was hungry and he was thirsty, that Jesus is determined to take the necessary personal risks and invest the time and the patience required to speak a word of gospel, a word of God's kindness and truth into this, the heart of this woman. Jewish people, which Jesus was, and it was clear that he was and his disciples were, and they were in a Samaritan town, and you all know that these, this was, the, the, these two people were at loggers' heads. They were in the same family, all right? And it was a family squabble that went back hundreds of years that had escalated to the point of actual armed conflict on the battlefield between the two of them. There were theological differences that were massive. There were uh, all kinds of differences uh, and so for Jesus to start this conversation, he knew that what he was doing was entering in with, with, uh, to a conversation with someone with whom there was built-in hostility. 
but he entered into it anyway. Jesus didn't start with the theological truth. He didn't pick a bone that was already in contention between them. He didn't start with a Bible verse or a personal insight. Jesus doesn't want to posture himself as an adversary to be defeated. He knew that religious discussions were generally recreational arguments, a verbal brawl. The winner is the one who drives the other into an exasperated withdrawal. And there, honestly, there aren't too many religious arguments between strangers or people who have just met that don't go that direction. Jesus didn't want to win an argument. He didn't want even to win a convert. He wanted this antagonistic but heartbroken woman to trust him long enough to let a healing word of the gospel into her scarred and very thirsty spirit. So Jesus opens the encounter by putting himself at a disadvantage. He asks, give me a drink. Since he has no cup or pot from which to drink, he is asking her to share hers with him. Jesus asks her for more than just water. He asks her for hospitality. And in doing so, he communicates his respect for her as a person. He's talking to a person now who has the capacity to bless him or reject him. And that gives her power. His, he expresses his need for what she has to offer. And that's an important dynamic in any relationship. Is, does that person have something to give me? And, and if I'm asking for it, if, I, if it's important enough for me to ask for it, it gives them power in that relationship. Jesus wants to build a bridge of mutual trust and respect with this woman. And he's willing to risk being rejected so that they might relate to each other and see and talk eye to eye. Now God loves you and I. And he constantly risks our misunderstanding, our rejection, and even our scorn as he reaches out to us, working to woo us back to our senses and back to him. Despite the imagery in Psalm 23, God doesn't want sheep. He wants children. Children who will join in the work that he's doing with him, who will join his heart and mind in doing the family business. I am challenged by the love that Christ shows. I'm challenged and a little bit ashamed by his love for us to accept the risk of being hurt for love's sake. Do I seek my neighbor's fellowship for its own sake? Do I communicate my regard and respect for them? Or will I stay aloof and keep myself pure from their Samaritan politics, their differing views on sexuality, or their Samaritan misunderstandings about God? There are two kinds of water that are being talked about here. The kind of water that you take to slake a, 
a thirst in, in your body and a water that you use to clean yourself or to wash your food with or clean your house with. And then there's the water that Jesus is talking about, living water that refreshes and restores a soul. The Samaritan chides Jesus because she knows he's, he's Jewish and she's Samaritan. Okay, and it's, it's like in this town, you know, we know what political side of the street each other are on in a town this size. And so what happens is the first exchange, the very glance will tell us, is this going to be one of those discussions? Or are we going to try to build bridges or are we going to try to burn bridges? Okay, And from the get-go, this woman is at the lowest possible social position in her village. And of course, one of the things we look for most as a human being is not just people to look up to, but people we can stand on, that we can look down on so we can feel better about ourselves. And here's a thirsty Jewish man asking her for water. She's in a great position to, to be better and bigger than somebody else. So she chides Jesus in verse 9. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus isn't put off at all. He doesn't take the bait. He responds in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He clearly states that he has a desire to bless her. Now, she doesn't know how, but he, she knows that that's his desire. Once again, I'm offering you something. Puts her in a position of rejecting it. He clearly states his desire to bless her, an offer that stands whether she gives him a drink of water or not. Boy, I got enough microphones. I could start my own band. There. So, verse 11, she comes back and she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? So she says, in effect, you don't even have the wherewithal to get this water. Water that is a gift from our father, Jacob, our father, Jacob. Jacob watered himself, his family, his livestock, and all of his descendants. Surely you don't claim to be a better man with better water than Jacob's. Again, trying to pull him in. She isn't giving him an inch. She is telling him the party line. Like all of us, we've got this internal script of things that we say when we run into somebody who disagrees with us or we disagree with. And she's pulling it all out. But once again... Jesus doesn't take the incendiary bait because he realizes that she is asking questions. And this is slowly turning into an encounter between people, an encounter with Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus is hoping she will do. So he ignores the, the part that's trying to bait him, and he moves on. 
Jesus doesn't touch her notions about Jacob or the relative value of living water versus real water that quenches the real thirsts of men and of beasts. Instead, Jesus makes his strongest claim in verses 13 to 14, and he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So not only, he is saying to her, not only will you be blessed by this water, but it will make you a blessing to others. All of which is just, that is a new thought for her, to be a blessing to others. The Samaritan then recall, then calls Jesus bluff in verse 15. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So she's hearing this stuff about spirituality and she's not buying it, okay? She says, okay, fine. Let's see what you can do, big talker. I'm tired of having to draw water every day for a thirst that I can only satisfy for a few hours. Show me what you can do. Now she's answering in a way that is sarcastic and maybe uh, 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 cynical, but now she's not only having a conversation, but she's admitting her need. She's owning that need. This is going in the direction that will lead to a real discussion. She is still thinking about physical thirst and natural water, and she doesn't yet see any connection between all the other wells in her life that she has been going to on a regular basis to get what she needs only to find that they satisfy her for only a little while and then she leaves increasingly thirsty. So Jesus speaks a word of truth that is hard to hear. This is the moment where what needs to be said, what has to be said, will be said. He says, go call your husband. Jesus goes to the heart of this woman's greatest struggle with the thirst in her life. We see from where Jesus goes with this next that Jesus isn't bringing up her five husbands to shame her. Often we like to bring a word of truth, as we call it, into someone's life and enjoy the sense of either revenge it gives us if we've been feeling the sting of some of their words to us, or the sense of superiority and righteousness, or even just the relief of being able to use the truth as a blunt instrument. Jesus brings this reality up to her only in the context of her desperate desire for something that sustains her spirit, something that quenches the awful thirst of her soul and fills the empty ache in her heart. Jesus doesn't want her to feel her shame. He wants her to feel her thirst. And there's a difference. Sin is the search for something good in places and ways that lead us away from God, and it just so happens that God is the only one who can be that wellspring. And anything that leads us away from God is going to lead us away from the very thing that we're hoping to gain in our sin. 
Every sin we try gives us an initial rush. But inevitably we find that it takes more and more sin to create a rush that seems to get smaller and smaller every time we try to recreate the moment. It exacts a cost. God finds no pleasure in shaming us. He confronts us only to show us the self-destructive ways that we have tried to replace him, to replace him with sex, with drugs. And in this society, our constant, uh, we're constantly telling each other that that next purchase we make, the next car we buy, the next house we buy, uh, whatever the thing is that catches our fancy uh, this Christmas, we will be happier when we have that in our life. It's an idol and it never pays off, not for long. Any of the treasures or pleasures that we have only seem to leave us thirstier and less satisfied than we were when we started. Jesus' action illustrates an important difference. It's important to us to know the difference and to live out the difference between spiritual judgment, which almost always turns into judgmentalism, and spiritual discernment. Spiritual judgment or judgmentalism is when we say that God has passed sentence and demands that the sinner change before even beginning a relationship with God. Spiritual discernment realizes that God enters into a relationship, and we see this over and over and over again as Jesus relates to sinners. God enters into a relationship with the sinner first and then draws out the true desires of the sinner's heart. He points out firmly but gently how destructive our sins are and insists that we must be changed, and he offers that even to one man saying, do you want to be healed? Then the love relationship he commits himself to while we are still sinners becomes the strength that we can trust in to endure the change that he's going to make in us. Addictions are broken. Attitudes are changed. The center of, the center of Christianity is not to affirm the direction that every person has taken. It is the center of Christianity is the cross. And the cross is death and resurrection. And that's, it's, it, it's, it, there is no way around it, over it or under it. We have to go through that and we have to keep coming back to it. Because what needs to change in us isn't just a tweak. Something in us needs to be put to death so that something new and good and real can be resurrected out of it. We're making real progress when we realize that our deepest thirsts are calling us to grow closer to God in his love, when we are willing to live with the pain of our hunger and our thirst until God becomes the food and the water we need to be satisfied. 
I'm challenged by Jesus' discernment to look again at how I approach people that Jesus has been loving since before they were born. Am I judging them and refusing to enter into a relationship with them until they straighten up? Or am I willing to let God love them through me to let my love be part of God's transforming power in their life? Do, does my life present a stop sign that says you can't go any further with me until you change and come around to my way of thinking? Or is there a desire? Do I communicate that I'm interested in building a bridge between us? And there won't be free traffic, perhaps, but there will be some. And we can reach out to each other. Feeling very uncomfortable, the Samaritan woman, hearing Jesus, asked this question, who is your husband or where is your husband? The Samaritan woman deflects the pain of Jesus' question by lighting a theological Molotov cocktail and throwing it in front of Jesus. She says in verses 19 to 20, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place to men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Jesus remarks that both Jews and Samaritans seek to worship the same God, but that the Jews are better acquainted with the God that they worship. Jesus reaffirms that salvation comes from the theology of the Jews, but God's intent is to reach out to all people through the sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, he reframes the question, it's, he, he, as he always does when someone throws out a question that's designed to lead down a rabbit trail, to win a debate without getting any further spiritually, Jesus says it's not a matter of if you are worshiping the Father in the right place. It's a matter of are you worshiping the Father from the right place? Are you worshiping from a heart that is open, that is honest? Are you worshiping, worshiping in spirit and in truth? To quench our deepest thirst, human spirit must be ready to encounter the Holy Spirit who we are really. We, when we think of spirit, we think of uh, some sort of science fiction or a horror show where spirits are these kind of, kind of quasi-living ghosts. We, matter of fact, we used to call the Holy Spirit. When I was a kid, it was the Holy Ghost. And uh, until we changed that, I think it was about 12 or 13 when people said, you know, that's kind of a bad word to use, ghost. When the Bible refers to spirit, it's talking about who we really and truly are. Spirit, the spirit of God, is who God really and truly is. It's, it is the essence of him. It is, it's, there, is, there is nothing more to him than what you find in spirit, and there's nothing less. It, that it, is, it is what he truly is. And our spirit is going in that direction. We have weaker spirits because of sin. But the Spirit is who we really and truly are. 
So to quench our deepest thirst, human spirit must be ready to encounter the Holy Spirit, who we really are, without pretending to be better than we are, and without denying the sin that we've embraced, who we really are must encounter God as he truly is. And this is what Jesus meant by worshiping God in spirit. Worshiping God in truth underscores the same point. John uses the word truth in one form or another more often than any other gospel writer or any epistle. Integrity is another word that means the same thing. Integrity is the quality of character that knits together the personality so that you don't have a two-faced person or somebody who is constantly changing to suit the audience, but someone who is well-woven together. What they say and what they do have a lot of correspondence. Worshiping God in truth underscores the same point. Worshiping God in truth means a coming together of what we believe and what we do and what we think. The ultimate truth in Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ himself and the gospel he incarnates. In John 1.17, John says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So Jesus brings the discussion right back to the woman and himself. That moment, together, spirit touching spirit, here and now, you and I, the Father and us. And one last attempt to put the actions of repentance and faith off to a later date to postpone the inevitable. The woman says in verse 25, when the Messiah comes, he will declare these things. And then Jesus goes right in. And he gives her nowhere else to hide. And he says, I who speak to you am he. Because today is always the day. Now is always the hour to be honest with Jesus Christ. Putting it off is always a mistake. Repent and trust Jesus to save you, to change you, to lead you, to give you a different perspective and a different heart than you came in today with. Let me read verses 28 and 29, which we didn't read this morning. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Samaritan woman left her pot behind. She abandoned the symbol of her sensible, concrete way of satisfying her thirst. And she was excited about Jesus and the freedom and the satisfaction that he offered that was more real than what was concrete and sensible. She called her community to come with her and to meet the man who had gotten right to the root of things who didn't judge her, didn't look down on her, but kept looking right into her and never looked away. She called the whole community to come with her and meet that man 
who knew exactly who she was and what she had done and still offered her water that would heal and satisfy her spirit. Let me read verse 39 one more time. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. What changed the Samaritan woman and her whole town was way more than what Jesus said. What changed them and what will change you and what will change me is meeting him, is crossing over that bridge, is asking for that water and being willing to receive it on whatever terms of truth and spirit that God offers it. What changed them and what will change us is an encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living water that will quench our deepest thirst. He is, as the townspeople said, the savior of the world. He is our only hope. He is our nation's only hope. He is the world's only hope. In closing, let me just read Isaiah 55, 1-3. Hello, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Let's pray. Lord, you call us to yourself, but you call us in spirit and truth. That means that every time we come to you, we need to be an open book. And so often it's a book that we don't, that contains pages we don't want turned, we don't want to revisit, we don't want to think about, we just want to get past it. And all the time, every time we try that, Lord God, we just end up reliving that same piece of story over and over again until you're able till we let you turn that page, open that part of the book up. You speak truth, not because you want us to experience shame, but because you want us to understand where the thirst comes from and, and how what we've been doing to satisfy it is, is wrecking our life. Lord, I pray that you would bless every person who's willing to let that page be opened by your spirit. I pray, Lord God, that you would give them the courage and the stamina and the strength to endure the hunger and the thirst that comes as they wait on you, while they wait on you, to bring what will really satisfy. I pray, Lord God, you would help us to embrace that hunger and that thirst until you satisfy us with yourself. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.